Amen. You can be seated. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible and want to turn, turn along. So first couple pages in your Bible, we're looking at Genesis chapter 3. And uh, as you do, I want you to imagine, all right, let's imagine it was Thursday afternoon and it was time for him to put on his makeup. But the key to putting on uh, camouflage for combat is that you have to make your face appear the opposite of what it actually is. So you want to look the opposite of what a human really looks like. So you have to make the dark places light and the light places dark. So on your face, you know, place where the shadows, you make light under the eyes, they need to become light. But all the parts that naturally shine, like your forehead and your nose and your cheeks, you got to make those dark. And as he was putting on his makeup, he started to think. Think about all the times where he had just been 50 feet away from his targets and they didn't even see him. Thought about how interesting it is that the human mind has this remarkable ability to only see what it expects to see and to not see what's right in front of him. You know, he had spent hours on his gully suit preparing it. He had mastered the art of invisibility. He was a trained hunter, and now he was about to go on the hunt. Since the Navy SEAL team had killed Osama bin Laden, the military special ops had gotten a lot of press, and he thought, well, maybe today might be my chance for a little glory, maybe a book, maybe a movie. Who knows? So here, normally snipers operate in pairs. You have a spotter who identifies. They range the target. But not today. The operation was too risky. His target too important. Today he would be all alone. He would need no visual confirmation. And the key to this whole mission was the stalk. Could he get close enough? Everything would hinge on how close he could get. If he could get close enough... The game was over, and that's actually what made him so good. Any country boy raised in Alabama can shoot a target a couple hundred yards away, but the question is, can you get close enough to fire? To say that Marine Sniper School is a cakewalk would probably be ridiculous because nobody just breezes through Sniper School, but... It was easier for him than others. There was only 300 out of the entire Marine Corps who went in, and his nearly perfect scores elevated him above his peers. And the way this mission would go down is there'd be a high-altitude, low-opening drop, a halo drop out of a plane. He would land about five miles from where the target was assumed to be. The first three miles, he'd move rather quickly, and then around mile four, he would slow up considerably, and then he would become one with the dirt, moving about, you know, 30, <clears throat> or moving about a foot every 30 seconds. And the key here is you had to keep the muzzle of your rifle so, uh, you couldn't make, take it so low that it got in the dirt, but you couldn't bring it up so high that it got spotted, and he had his beloved 300 Winchester Magnum with the KN250 night vision scope. And he had run through every possible scenario. And the key was, if he could get within 500 yards of the target, game over. 
800, it would be risky. It might, you know, could go either way. 1,000, we'll just have to see. He might need a little luck. But if he can just get close enough. Now, that, was, that is a kind of a fictional rendition of a sniper preparing to go to war. And could you imagine what it would be like to actually be hunted by someone that skillful who is coming on your trail and you not even know it? You know, once it would be terrifying. And what if I told you that Paul actually tells us that we're actually not in a battle with flesh and blood and there is an assassin for our soul who's coming after us? And one of the things we've been looking at for the last seven weeks are the primary weapons that the enemy uses to try and strike. What are his weapons he uses against us? And we looked at the seven deadly sins of anger, greed, pride, envy, lust. These are the weapons he uses. But we have one more, gluttony, but we're going to shift because what I want us to kind of start focusing on is thinking about for the next couple weeks, all right, how does he get close? What is his strategy for stalking you? How does he get close? And we're going to look at the way Satan, how he comes up to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And then we'll switch in the next couple weeks. I'll tell you more about him as we move into the victory. But here, you know, the the theme, the theme of the Bible is that this is God's good world, ruined by sin, redeemed by the Son, and being recreated by the Holy Spirit. And what we want to see is how is sin going about ruining us? How does it get close? And we're actually going to look at, so our case study this morning isn't so much Eve, but our case study is to look at the serpent and see how he comes close. And so we're going to look at a couple things. We'll just look at it. All right, who's our enemy? And then how does he stalk? What camouflage does he use? And then how does he strike? So we'll kind of walk in that progression of those four things. So first, let's look at the passage. This comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that is a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings. So here's our story. What we want to key in on is, all right, how does Satan sneak up on us? How does he stalk? How does he get close? What are his strategies? But first, just look at who the enemy is, and it says the serpent. And it's so interesting because there's so many things we just don't know that the Bible doesn't really tell us. We don't, in some sense, have much knowledge about who he is, where he came from, how he got there. It's just kind of uh, assumed, you know, there's, there's hints and shadows at other places that here in Revelation, he was, you know, the dragon who led a rebellion and a third of the angels are swept away with him. But here he's already there. And it does give us two little peeks into windows into who he is or what happened to him. Do you notice how it says, and the serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts? All right, so crafty is not like 
This is not like farmer's market, Pinterest post, crafty. Uh, this is, uh, the, the actual word, it's interesting because the word is the same word that Proverbs transfers as prudent. He was more prudent. So it's interesting because it's not something in essence that's negative. It's something that's morally neutral. In Proverbs 14, it says the prudent are crowned with knowledge. And so you have this character who in, in, in some way he was created to be one of the wisest beings in creation. He was endowed with incredible wisdom. But the way evil works and the way Satan works is he takes good gifts from God and then twists them. They get distorted and turned against you. And so even in his life, somehow it was his wisdom that got taken and twisted. It got corrupted. And so now that wisdom is now going to be used in the service of things that are crafty, that are corrupt, that are evil. See, evil is parasitic. It latches onto things, and then it twists them. But it is interesting, notice too, that more crafty than any other of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. So this is mysterious, but we need to remember that he was made. He was created. So our world is not the world from, of a galaxy long ago, far, far away, or whatever. It's not the, the battle of dual like light and dark, and they're equal in this battle. This is, there's an inversion. He was, he was made. He's a creature. So that's who he is. But now notice the stalk. How does he get close? This is the real key. How does he get close to them, and then how does he get close to us? And the interesting thing here is notice what he uses to sneak up next to her. He uses sarcasm and exaggeration. He comes and the first thing he says, did God actually say? Now that actually, you know, so Satan was the very first, well, actually person. Uh, did God actually say that? And it's an interesting kind of word. You could translate it a number of different ways. Uh, you could translate like, really? Did God really say that? Uh, he's, he's not asking a question for information. He's scoffing. He's mocking. The first thing he does is he's sarcastic. He sneers at what God has said. He rolls his eyes. It's, oh, you can't believe that. You can't actually believe that God said, did God really say that? He has this snickering, sneering attitude. And just think about that for a second. The temptation in paradise begins with an eye roll and a snicker and a sneer. It begins with a joke. I mean, could you really believe that the fall of the human race started with a joke? He's going to, it's, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of mocking and sarcasm. Indeed, really? Did God actually say that? And it's worth thinking about. You know, people more often times than not lose their faith, not because of actual arguments, but because of an atmosphere that's created. And we live in a world that loves to create this atmosphere where who God is and what he said gets snickered at and sneered. You can't actually believe that. You know, Daniel Dennett, who is the... Um, director of the Center for Cognitive Studies and as a professor at Tufts University. He often will do uh, debates with kind of prominent Christian apologetics. And one of kind of his laugh lines that uh, he loves to say at his debates is that 
you know, the thing that would heal, like if, if he could snap his fingers and uh, the, the, the best thing that could happen for our country is if we rounded up all the Baptists and put them in a zoo. And oftentimes people will laugh and I wonder, well, let's get the Baptists and let's put them all in a zoo. I'm an ordained Baptist minister. We're non-denominational. I don't know if we would get rounded up or not. We might be on the, you know, I don't know. And it's funny because people then will laugh. And sometimes at these debates, people will cheer. Like, that's, yes, that's what our country needs. We need to round up the Baptists, put them in a zoo. Now, let's think about that for a second. And, you know, he's never gotten, like, hit on social media or there's never been anyone calling for him to be fired because he says that. Now, let's, let's take out Baptists and let's just fill in the blank with other demographic groups from our country and just see if people would laugh. So let's take all of the women and put them in a zoo. How many people are laughing? Let's take all of the Muslims in our country and put them in a zoo. People find that funny? Or let's take all of the African Americans, put them in a zoo. Is anyone laughing? Or let's, let's kind of get a little more precise. Let's uh, say, all right, well, we can't do all the Baptists because there's 46 million of them. They're everywhere. So let's just take two prominent examples. So really, the problem is not all the Baptists. It's just the Baptist preachers. They're the ones who are kind of ruining everything. So let's just take the two most prominent Baptist preachers from the 20th century and let's put them in the zoo. So who are the two most prominent influential Baptist preachers of the 20th century? They were Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr., so let's take them. Let's take Billy Graham and put him in a zoo. Let's take Martin Luther King Jr. and put him in a zoo. And now no one's laughing. Because if you were laughing, you would be wicked. But why is it that one can be made? Because what Satan loves to do is actually create an atmosphere where the things of God so much aren't argued, they're just mocked. They're made fun of, and they're snickered, and they're sneering, and we don't understand just underneath the surface is venom and vile. And so kids, when you're at your middle school table and people are making fun of you for going to church, or you're at your college dorm room and people are making fun of you for the things you believe, uh, nobody wants to experience that. But understand, that's where it begins. All temptation begins here with an atmosphere. You know, Tim Keller, who's pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, said one of the greatest things that he ever experienced for his ministry is, you know, he was in kind of late 30s, early 40s when they planted Redeemer right in the middle of New York City. And it was the first time in his life he'd ever been around people who were pretty kind of um, forceful, demonstrative in the things they believe. So he'd kind of get up and preach on Sunday morning, and then people, kind of New Yorkers, would come up to him after sermon and say, I don't like what you said. That's ridiculous. Let's talk about it on coffee on Tuesday. He's like, uh, okay. And uh, so they go, and he had hundreds of conversations where people were challenging uh, things that he was saying. He said one of the things, probably 95 out of 100 times, people would say something, and it wouldn't actually be an argument. It would be to create an atmosphere. He said one of his standard responses became, that's an, uh, an assertion where you're trying to create an atmosphere. But it's not an argument. Tell me why you really think what I believe is, is foolish or untenable. And it's interesting to think about how Satan's primary strategy is to mock, to, to be sarcastic, to create an atmosphere. And I think it's something we have to be careful of because I think humor is one of God's greatest gifts to us as humans. I think when you're really experiencing wholehearted, just belly laughter. You're experiencing one of what, what it means, to the, the fullness of what it means 
to be human. But like all good gifts, it can be taken and twisted. And we live in a, in a, in a world where um, humor in one sense, is dangerous. It's very sarcastic. See, healthy humor is just an expression of humility, where you kind of, you, you can put things in such a way where uh, who we all are is kind of opened up and revealed. And we can laugh and say, yeah, that's, that's, how, that's how we are. What it does, it kind of deflates everybody. But then there's a type of sinister humor, a serpentine humor that's going to put others down to exalt the self. And it's interesting because it, it then mocks and laughs. It says, you know, I can laugh and point my finger at every one of you. Everybody else in the world is filled with BS except me. And I can call it out. You know, the poet uh, W.H. Auden, it's an interesting essay where he talks about the difference between humor in the Greek, uh, Greek tragedies, the plays, and the humor in Shakespearean plays. And he said, in the, in the Greek tragedies, humor happened when everyone on stage was crying and everyone in the audience was laughing. That's how humor was filled. You see and you have a sense of moral superiority over those people on stage and, they're these, uh, and you're laughing at them. But he says, Shakespeare was something different. It was where everyone on stage would reveal how all of us really are and everyone would be laughing together. And he kind of wrestles, why? What, was the happen what happened in the, in the world that caused the transition from one toxic form of humor to one healthy form of humor? And he makes the case it was a transformation of the gospel, working itself out into the world as it seeped into the world and people began to see we're all sinners, we're all fallen at the, at the foot of the cross. It levels all of us. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Why? But we live in a sarcastic age you know, irony and sarcasm is the only real humor we have left. I wonder what it's like, because many just people in our culture, like, they, they, like, some people only get their news from comedians, who their job is to make fun of things. They get paid lots of money to make fun of things. And I wonder, what does that mean for us? I have a friend who reminds me that, because I like to be sarcastic at times, and he says, if all you are is sarcastic, you're not funny, you're just mean. And uh, we, we don't sneer. Here's where the sneering begins. Because this is toxic not just in society. This is toxic in your relationships. Remember, I thought so when I was going through uh, uh, marital counseling from one of my professors, and one of the things he said, all right, we want to listen and look for where the eye roll happens. Where does one person start to roll their eyes at the other? This is now you're getting at a place where Satan's gotten close because they're mocking it's that disdain, and that's what's going to break relationships, and that's where Satan begins. But notice the next thing he does. He doesn't begin with a contradiction. He first is sarcastic, and then he asks a question. Did God really say that? I mean, you can't believe he really said Did, did God really say that? And this question is both disturbing and it's flattering. Because notice, he's, he's subtly uh, opening up the door for an inversion to happen. See, the proper order is, is God is God, and he gives commands, and they obey, but now he's shifting it and saying, no, you actually should sit on the throne of judgment, and you need to make the decision and determination whether you can believe what he's said or not. You can't believe that he said that, can you? And the whole goal is to cast God in this light of he's the cosmic party pooper. Think about how much more fun your life would be if he wasn't around. And it's interesting, did you notice he exaggerates... 
And he says, you shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden in verse 1. And then she corrects his exaggeration and says, no, 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 it's not any tree, but it is just this one right here in the middle. And then she, it's fascinating, she corrects his exaggeration with her own exaggeration. And so why is that? Why do we do that in conversation when somebody's saying something we clearly know wrong? We say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, totally, totally. Well, no, not even remotely. But then she'll correct with her own exaggeration. And so it's fascinating that she uses, or he uses, Satan uses humor and sarcasm to get close. So think about that for a second. What are the things in your life that you are tempted to scoff at and to mock? What are the things you laugh at? That means that the soul assassin has slithered close. And he's near. I had a powerful testimony a couple years ago from um, a guy who was talking about how uh, it wasn't until he got around a group of Christians that he felt like he, his, his line was clean laughter. So it was the first time in my life I ever heard laughter that felt clean. I didn't somehow feel stained or dirty afterwards. It was clean. That's one of the gifts of the gospel. It will transform you so you can experience clean laughter. But that's how he's going to stalk. Now notice the camouflage that he puts on. Because camouflage is all about making what's light look dark and what's dark look light. And this is exactly what he does. Here he goes in with the direct lie. So it begins by creating an atmosphere. And once the atmosphere or the attitude of the heart has come, then he can strike. And he says, you will not die. Uh, surely God knows in verse 4, you won't die. He knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be just like him, knowing good and evil. And now's the direct uh, contradiction of what God has said. And it's interesting to think, what's his strategy? How does he, what does he go after? You know, it's interesting, he doesn't go after God's existence. He doesn't say, ah, how could you believe in a God? Nobody, no thoughtful, intelligent person believes in a God. Uh, Actually, you know, the vast majority of people who've ever lived in humanity on earth do. So he doesn't go after that. And he doesn't even go after God's commands. Oh, well, God, he would never say things like that. Don't worry. He actually goes after something far more subtle but sinister, something deep. He says he goes after God's goodness. So do you realize what he's keeping from you? He doesn't say, you know, you know, how can you believe God exists or that God would say something? He says, do you know what he's keeping from you? He's hiding something. You can't trust him. That's the real temptation. The real temptation is if you obey him, you can't trust him. He doesn't have your good. If you obey him, you will not be happy. And that's the fundamental center of all of Satan's lies. Kids, that will be the fundamental thing you will hear for the rest of your life. If we obey him, we'll, we will not be happy. This is the path to a boring life. That's what he says. Do If you do this, you can't. He's attacking trust. You can't trust him. And it's interesting to think why. What happens when that fundamental trust breaks down in the beginning? You know, like child psychologists will tell, say things that like if uh, one of the worst things that can happen for a child developmentally is very early in their development, they don't uh, attach to their primary caregiver, and there's a sense of they can't trust them. And it's interesting, like, why is that so devastating for a child? And isn't it fascinating that here when humanity's in its infancy, the first thing he goes after is you can't trust him. 
And I wonder, as we're kind of wrapping up all the other seven deadly sins, I wonder if there isn't a sense that every one of them in some way can be fueled by you can't trust him. I know he says you shouldn't sleep with this person, but can I trust him to have my good? I know he says that I should be more generous with my money, but can I trust him for my security? I know that I shouldn't be anxious about these things, but can I trust him to actually get it right? My life should be going a certain way, and it doesn't seem like it is. Can I trust him? And see, his great strategy, his great camouflage is he makes what should be light look dark and what should be dark look light. And as we're trying to live wisely in the world, the one of the most important skills we can develop is can you discern what should darkness as darkness and light as light? And as we help our children, as we engage with things like the media and movies and television shows and songs, we need to be listening and thinking through, is this presenting something that is dark as light and light as dark? That's really how Christians evaluate things like movies. You know, there's certain shows on the Disney Channel that drive me crazy, not just because of the repetitive, obnoxious, mind-numbing songs. But one of the things that drives me crazy is when they present things like uh, what is something good, which is loving, caring, adult authority, as something bad, which is bumbling, fumbling, and going to ruin your life. That's presenting something that's light as dark. And so we have to learn to be able to diagnose and see those things. And then notice what he says. There's two things. He know, The lie is that you will know good and evil, and you will be just like God. Those are the two lies. To know good and evil is more than just kind of like some self-conscious awareness of moral categories. It's, in essence, not so much you'll know good and evil, but you'll determine it. You'll be the one who gets to dictate it. You will decide what is good, what is evil. And then you will be just like God. You will take upon yourself his exclusive prerogatives. See, sin here is not just the breaking of a couple rules. The sin is the inserting yourself in God's place. It's taking the place that he deserves. And so now once, once he slithers, he gets close, he's got that camouflaged, and notice the strike, the weapon, the bite comes in verse 6. And notice the progression. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, it was to be desired to make one wise. Isn't it interesting? The pathway to her heart was wisdom. You can be wise. You don't have to be this, this, this bumbling fool who just takes orders from somebody else. You can be wise. And then she took the fruit and she ate. She gave some to her husband. And then the eyes of both of them were open. So see the progression. And so this is really the universal pattern of sin that works itself out in all of the temptations. You follow your impressions, not his instructions, and then you determine for yourself what's good, what's evil, rather than entrusting him. And then she has become what she has consumed. You know, we say you, you are what you eat. That's because what you eat then in this strange physiological way that you guys could explain to us, it like becomes part of your body. And then she has eaten it and now has become that. And it's worth thinking about for a second. What does that actually mean? Why, 
So uh, just kind of all the symbolism in this picture is, you know, they're true trees, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, you know, we kind of conceptualize, like, he gave her this apple. I don't know if it's just Snow White's influence that we think that, or Milton's is the first one who had the apple coming, but it's a piece of fruit, and it's not just kind of like normal fruit, like this is the most amazing strawberry from wherever amazing strawberries come from. The idea is like the tree of life, they can't eat it because if they do, he says, then they will be like us. They will be eternal. They'll never die. So it has these, it, it's symbolic of something that's happening that's extraordinary. So what was the temptation of the knowledge of good and evil? What happened in essence to her once she ate? And I think maybe a helpful way to think about it might be to think about it in the context of like med school. So think about you guys. So think about, all right, so you're in med school, and then you're going to study for a significant period of time, and then you have to specialize, then you start down your career path. And let's say one of you goes down the career path of becoming like an expert in some form of like pancreatic cancer. So you're going to spend the next 20 years studying the pancreas, studying cancer, and you're going to, and let's say you eventually become, you know, one of the the top surgeons in the world who can deal with pancreatic cancer. And then let's say somebody comes to you for a diagnosis and treatment, and they're, you know, they're in their early 30s, or, and, uh, and he's been eaten alive by pancreatic cancer, and then he looks at the doctor and says, what do you know? about this, what I'm experiencing. And so think about this. So you'll have two people who are experiencing, uh, two people who actually have tremendous knowledge of pancreatic cancer. One, it's from the outside. It's understanding it from, uh, from an external position as an expert. But the other one is understanding it from the inside, the pain. The, the, the frustration, the, break, the, the breakdown that it's caused. Who actually knows more about pancreatic cancer? Who has more knowledge of it? Well, it's actually kind of hard to say. I mean, in one sense, you say the doctor knows more, but then the, the, the patient knows certain things in a certain way. And I just wonder if our knowledge of good and evil was intended to be like this. Like the Lord would have slowly walked them down a path where they learn about these things from the outside where they listen to him and they hear and then they believe what good really is and what evil really is. But once she took it and once sin entered the world, now we know all about it from the inside, that it's entered into us and it's eaten us up. And so now the question is, all right, how can this be reversed? How can this be healed? And again, kids, I think this will be one of the, the battles of your life is will you trust the people around you to tell, it, tell you about good and evil from the outside or are you going to force yourself in learning about it from the inside? You know, you don't have to experience all of the scars to learn from scars. And so for her, now she experienced it from the inside. So now the question is, all right, how can this be reversed? How can we? So when it happened, she then was made evil on the inside. Now how can we be made good on the inside? And it's really interesting that the destruction of the world began when Satan held out something forbidden and said, take and eat. And then the redemption of the world begins when Christ holds out something else and says, take and eat. Listen to Matthew 26, right before he was betrayed. 
and went to the cross. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, he gave it. See the progression. Jesus takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives, and then he says to his disciples, take and eat this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he drank all of it. And he says, this is the blood of my covenant. Take and drink it for the forgiveness of your sins. And so it, the, the destruction happened when Satan held out his hand and said, take and eat. And the redemption happens when Christ holds out his hand and says, take and eat. And so now for the next couple of weeks, so we're going to be moving out of a series looking at Satan's strategies for attacking us. And we're going to move into Jesus's accomplishment of victory for us. Because the beauty and the glory of the gospel is that we don't actually stay here. That the tempter came to Eve in the garden and held out the temptation and she fell. And then the second Adam comes to another garden and he succeeds in the temptation. So we're going to start moving and leading up to Easter and then flowing out of Easter. Our theme is going to be the victory of Jesus. So we're going to see his victory over the same tempter who slithers up close to him at his most vulnerable in the wilderness. And next week, Dave Lindemore is going to tell us about Jesus' victory over temptation and Satan in the wilderness. And then we're going to look the week leading up to Easter and look at Jesus' victory over sin on the cross, how he triumphs over all the punishment that this brought in. And Julio Cruz is going to be sharing with us about that. And then on Easter, um, I'm going to be out of town for two weeks. And then Easter, when we come back, we're going to turn and look how on the throne, Jesus then brings victory over all of the suffering. And the one who sits on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. And all that these temptations and sins stained, I am healing and redeeming and renewing. And you can pray for us. I'm not exactly sure where we're going to go uh, after that when we come back in our sermon series, but I really want to key in on that reality of the risen Christ is reigning and he's victorious. And all of our life flows out of that. And the glory of the Christian life is the victorious Christ uh, invites us into uh, experience and then extend his victory. And the whole reality of what it means to be a church is that we're invited into the ruling and reigning of Jesus. We're joining Jesus as he's making all things new. And so I, I, I'm thinking about uh, walking us through the book of Revelation and seeing the risen Christ as the victorious one, but I don't quite know if I'm, I'm ready, for, ready for that. So we'll, we'll see. We'll have to see how it, uh, how it progresses. But as we shift, I want you to take that idea and just hold on to that reality that the way he makes us good is uh, uh, he makes us good from the inside. And then, then we move out, and it happens from taking and eating. And what taking and eating is, what we celebrate and what represents the Lord's Supper, is receiving his word and then living off of his promises. We feed on him. See, he gives his blood that cleanses us, and he gives his body, which is bread, that nourishes and sustains us. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend a couple minutes. We're going to be praying, pray for ourselves, and then pray for a couple other things uh, in the church. So let's pray.